Hi there, this is the Steve's Speed Shop podcast. I rather obviously am Steve. Uh, thanks for downloading the show and I hope that you enjoy it. Hi, welcome to another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Steve's Speed Shop is brought to you by WarrantyWise, the UK's best warranty provider. Get a quote from them today at warrantywise.co.uk. UK. We're brought to you by West Coast Motorcycles. They're in the business of pre-loved Harley-Davidson motorcycles. They've been at it for 35 years, and you can find them on Facebook at West Coast Motorcycles. And we're brought to you by Mini Sports. Anything and everything for the classic Mini since 1967. Now, my guest today is Dave Marsden. Dave is he's a bit modest, but he's probably the preeminent expert in the world when it comes to the Kawasaki Z1, the iconic 130 mile an hour. It was the fastest bike in the world when it was released back in the early 70s, the Kawasaki Z1. He's been around the world on various bikes numerous times. He is my guest today on Steve Speed Shop. The three best-looking motorcycles of all time, in my humble opinion, are, at three, the 1964 Triumph Bonneville, at two, the 1994 Ducati 916, and at one... It must be the Kawasaki Z1. It is the Kawasaki Z1, and that's why today, Dave Marsden, you are my guest. I, I, I just... Right, okay. The only motorbike model, plastic kit model, that I've ever made... I've made a lot of fighter aircraft and a lot of battleships uh, and a lot of cars, but only ever one motorbike, because the motorbike ones are fiddly. I always bought them pre-made, like from Barago or Palistil or, or whatever. The only one I ever actually sat down and put together was a Kawasaki. Well, that's... Um, that, that's what, what year was that? I don't know. I was a kid. I mean, we are men of a certain age, and so possibly our opinion of what constitutes a good-looking motorbike is is affected... Well, not, ob- not possibly. Obviously, it's affected by our age. But I had a couple of guests in just before Christmas... Mm-hmm. Um, Jeff Smell and Nick Colton, and we'd gone to the bike show at the NEC together, the big bike show here in the UK, yeah. and been largely disappointed by what we saw. Well, I go every year and people say, what are you going to the bike show for? It's full of bikes. I mean, what more do you want from a bike show? But yeah, I know where you're coming from from that, and they all look the same. But, you know, didn't people say that about early Japanese motorcycles, UJM, Universal Japanese Motorcycle, in the 60s and 70s? They, they did look all the same. But, you know, is that not just how it progresses? Well, no, because to me, um, the Kawasaki Z900 didn't look like anything else that had come before. It looked like a lot of things that have come since, but there were a few bikes, only a few down the years, that really are. It's a modern term, but I'm going to use it, Dave. Are game changers. And it was a game changer, it was. wasn't it? It was, you're right. I mean, we've said it many, many times before. I mean, there was nothing new about it, like we said. But, you know, it had a four cylinder engine, but it had four cylinder engines in the past. There was no new technology in the Z900. No, no. I mean, people think, oh, disc brakes. Disc brakes date from the 1920s. Exactly. They, they just yeah. never caught yeah. on initially. Yeah, in line fours from. Same period. Triumph Ricky had a five-valve head in nineteen the mid nineteen twenties. A Triumph Ricardo, the Ricky, had a five-valve head, and people were boasting about four-valve heads yeah, in the eighties. Yeah. Well, when the Yamaha brought that five-valve head out, and they have said it was wow, you know, it's a game changer. But like you said, nothing was new. It was just the way it was put together and packaged. 
I mean, never before could you have had such a, a, a motorcycle that could do everything. Even racing on a Sunday, as they used to say, mm. and, and then go to work on a Monday. And even now, uh, if you're buying a Z1, I mean, if you buy an old two-stroke now, um, an old British two-stroke, or even Japanese two-stroke, would you really want to go to work on it on a Monday morning? You know, it's just <laughs> it's antisocial, if, if, you know, if nothing else. But on a Z1, you could actually still use it. You could go to South of France on it, you know, tomorrow, and then come back and, and still be in one piece. I've got an old 350. Don't laugh. You're going to laugh now, but I've got an old 1974 350 Jawa um, two-stroke twin-cylinder, and I thought... With an outside car? It had a chair on it um, at, did, yeah, at some did. point, because it's got the mounting points. They were very... Do you know that that bike held some sort of record, like the most energy per cubic centimetre for years and years produced by a motorcycle engine. For years and years it held that. Even though it's like flat out at 85 miles an hour, you really wouldn't want to go at 85 miles an hour on it. I thought there's a bike that I can use to bat around Manchester because we've got a terrible motorcycle crime epidemic in this city. I mean, anything decent, especially anything that looks like it might be a dirt bike or an adventure yeah, bike, yeah. and you as, you as an adventure bike all in all this. If you turn round, it's gone. Yeah. So my theory was, nobody will want to steal this motorcycle. I've only paid £500 for it. I can ride it around the city. I can leave it anywhere. But the problem, and it's it's not bad. It'll do 85 miles an hour. I'm not going to go over no. 50, 60 in the city. You can't use them because they the brakes and the road holding and that are so yeah. antique that the way that people drive now, yeah. it just makes it dangerous for you. People will, as you know, will stop even when they're meant to go, then realise that they've got to go, and they just stand on the accelerator. Yeah. But you're making decisions from 1974 on when yeah. you stop and break and turn. So even if you're obliging by the letter of the law... You're still going to be a victim because other people yeah. run red lights, and you 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 really need twin discs, modern rubber, modern chassis, modern suspension to protect yourself from the actions of others. Yeah, you can't use. I don't think you can use a classic bike, so to speak. No, but a Z1. Yeah, you could still use it as a uh, as a bike as it was intended for. Um, and to be honest, there's that many copies of it with the Zephyr and the ZRX and... Well, it's a bike now that... Yeah, ZRX. This is one of the reasons I wanted to bring in, because one of the bikes that I saw at the motorcycle show at the NEC, the big show here in the UK about a month ago, was the new version of the Kawasaki yeah. Z900, the Kawasaki Z1, whatever we want to call yeah. it. And I thought, there's a design, there's a style of motorcycle that will never go out of fashion. No. That is what people... Well, people of our age see as a motorcycle. I don't know, Dave. I mean, I look at things like, um, you know, I look at Bike Shared here in the UK, Bike EXIF, their website there, and Chris Hunter's incredibly popular website with custom bikes from around the world. Yeah. And I see that style of motorcycle. Inline four across the frame, straight bars, no fairing, exposed engine, upswept exhaust... That style yeah. is still there. What what are we on from the from the from the big Kawasaki? Now? Are we we getting on for fifty years on? Yeah, yes, yeah, fifty years in nineteen uh, well nineteen seventy two with the release of the uh, of the Z one. Of course, the four cylinder Honda was sixty nine, so we have passed the fifty year. Um, so we're getting up to two thousand and twenty two. Will be the fifty year of Z ones. So tell the story, Dave. The Honda the Honda came out because I'm 
I've read various versions of what happened with Honda and Kawasaki yeah. in 1969, and, and, and I've, I've heard that Kawasaki were ready to go and didn't know that the Honda was going to come out, and then they thought, oh, we need to, we need to hang fire on this. Yeah, is, is there any truth it. in that? Yeah, yeah. We don't forget, we're talking when there was, there was no Facebook, there was no Instagram, you know, people didn't know. I mean, it's hard to believe that you wouldn't know that your competitors making a motorcycle. But I guess, I mean, Japan's only a small place, small island, so you think someone would have said something, but, but is it not. Is it Japanese corporate culture? Yeah, I Which think would mean that you didn't talk about what you were doing, yeah. about, you didn't talk about the new superbike that you were going to stun the world with. Yeah. And so... When yeah. the CB750 did emerge, yeah. well, Kawasaki, Kawasaki well on the way with their 750. Um, they'd done all the design work in America, and they'd done some wooden mock-ups, clay mock-ups, and they were all ready to set the world on fire. And then apparently, suddenly, there's the Honda CB750, and apart from it being single overhead cam, um, it just that's it. It was like back to the drawing boards. Um, having said that, they didn't go that far back to the drawing board because they just made it. A bigger bike. Now, that was the big thing, was to make it a bigger bike than the 750 Honda and to put that extra camshaft on, which was a big thing at the time. But like we said before, there have been plenty of other bikes with double overhead camshaft. But um, I think a lot of people... What was interesting as well, I'll come back to that in just a sec, what I thought was, was interesting about that. Um, even in the mid-60s, when they would have been making the decisions, yeah. the Japanese knew that it was probably a good idea to employ an American design studio to tell them about paint yeah. jobs and styling and all that sort of stuff. They didn't trust themselves no. to know what the American market... And let's not forget, it was made for the American market. Oh, yeah, yeah that it? was the sole purpose, was to capture the American market, um, which is why it had things like sintered uh, valve guides, sintered uh, valve seats so we could run unleaded gas which was obviously the big thing in America at the time. Not so much over here. We didn't get it till a long time later. Uh, positive crankshaft ventilation, which was a nod to the emissions, which they knew the Californians were going, going that way. So, yeah, it was meant for uh, America. But I don't think that they thought it would catch on so well all over the world. I remember looking in the Guinness Book of Records in Berry Library and seeing a picture of a Z900, and it was saying that... It had taken the crown of the Vincent Black Shadow as the world's fastest production motorcycle, and let's not re let's yes. not forget the Vincent had had that accolade for over fifteen years, fifteen, yeah, yeah. sixteen yeah, years. Yeah. It had been oh, the yeah, fastest yeah. bike in yeah. the world until yeah. the Kawasaki. Yeah. Uh, took it from them. Well, Kawasaki claimed about 135 miles an hour, which in reality was about 125, which, I mean, thinking about it now, that's not much, is it? What's the fastest uh, you've been on one, Dave? Have you maxed one out? I bet you have. The uh, fastest I've been on a Z1, I've seen 140 on the clock. <laughs> uh, and that was in my younger days when I was a lot braver. I bet that was lively. That was three three lanes of the motorway <laughs> of the new, newly opened M60. It was, uh, it was a frightening experience, but, you know, it had to be done. But in reality, I mean, 115, 120 miles an hour was was about its top speed fourth gear do you think we've seen a, a bigger it might have been recently and we'll come back to that in a sec do you think we've seen a bigger advance or or in the technology and the performance of a motorcycle because if you think from 1969 i'm remembering this right from 1969 to 1972 it might have been 73 the Norton Commando was yeah. Motorcycle News Bike of the Year. Correct. That was voted for here in the UK by the readers of Motorcycle News, which was one of the not just one of the biggest selling motorbike 
publications in the UK, one of the biggest selling publications in the UK. Yeah. If you went to a regular newsstand in the UK, they'd have like the daily papers and they'd always have motorcycle yeah. news. You could buy motorcycle news everywhere because it was, it was such a big seller. Yeah. Voted for by the readers, Norton Commando, Norton Commando, Norton Commando, Norton Commando. And then for five years, either the Z9 or the Z1. Yeah. Well, that tells you basically it. I mean, but if you went back and rode a commando from that era, and it would have been one of the punched out eight fifties, wouldn't it? With yeah, the, with it would the, have been able to electric start with the rubber. Yeah, yeah, ice, ice, <laughs> ice elastic. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, engine mounts. It would feel very, and I'm a huge fan of the Norton Commando. Don't get me started on. That. Although it's interesting, there's there's a new Norton Commando, yeah. obviously from Stuart Garner's yes, new Norton yes. company, and I was looking at some of the stats on that, so. An original Z900 from 72 is, what, 903 cc's, 132 yep. mile an hour, they claim, yep. and 82 brake horsepower. Yep. They claim 80. Claim. They claim 80 for that new Norton Commando. Yeah. Well, I bought horsepower. one of those new ones in 2010. In fact, I've got the one out of the first bikes, number frame number 47, uh, which I was going to collect and keep, uh, but I sold it after a year. No, I didn't use it. Uh, I sold it after a year. Uh, and I did test drive it, uh, test drive it before, and yeah, I was quite impressed. You know, it was. Uh, I was thinking, oh, perhaps I should test drive an old Norton just to see, uh, you know, the comparison. Um, in fact, I did test drive an old Norton in 1975, and it nearly put me off motorcycling. It was that bad. That was one of the old 750 fastbacks. My brother-in-law had one. My dad had a Highline. Oh, Do you remember that? No, which one was that? That was the factory custom commando. Oh, right. Um, with the sort of fiberglass seat unit. Oh, right, right. Yeah, I've probably seen it in the museum. At, yeah, uh, and, and higher bars. And me and my brother used to sit on it, and I used to try and reach the bars and think, one day I'll be able to reach the bars, and this uh, is like the ultimate bike. One of the most... Uh, one of the best-looking bikes, like the, like the Kawasaki, one of the best-looking bikes ever made, but... Why do you think they got it so right straight away, Dave? Because d- did the bike improve after it was launched? Was it was was no, not was really. Not... I mean, the basic bike stayed on all the way up to 1980. When they changed it to the uh, to the J series, as we call it, uh, which the only big difference is that they took the uh, the kickstart shaft out, uh, and it was all electric. But no, it, it hardly changed at all. There were small modifications, as, as you can imagine. It was designed in the 60s, so the electrics. Uh, especially the charging system was a weak point, but um, I mean, you, you, these days you just replace it with a modern unit. So only small little modifications were required. Nothing major. When, when did it with the J? Did it go? Um, did they lose the points ignition? Uh, well, they, they lost the points ignition in '78 with the Mark IIs, which was like when they went through their angular phase. <laughs> and the square cam covers and even now the Z1 Owners Club all, every Z1 Owners Club uh, they used to exclude uh, <laughs> uh, the, the block heads the square heads because the cam covers weren't round but the, it, the now, best example no. of that I've ever come across was that the Veliset Owners Club wouldn't let the scooter into their owners club, the Vi- the Veliset Viceroy, because it was widely believed to have bankrupted the company. Uh, and when you look at it, you think, oh my God, it's like, why, you know, we're asking the question about why the Kawasaki Z900, the Kawasaki Z1 was so right, right from the get-go. All the other scooters, apart from Vespa and Lambretta, were disastrous. Yeah. I, 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 why did everybody else find it so difficult to build a scooter? Well, you think, I mean, you hear these stories of like Suzuki took apart a Z1 and reproduced it to make their GS. Yeah. Um, 
why didn't everyone else do things like that? I know it sounds it sounds irresponsible, but yeah, I mean, if there was if there was a scooter that was a, a good seller and it was reliable, you would just buy one and take it to pieces. But the especially the British uh, companies, they tend to think that they're going to do it their way, um, and it just didn't work. So we're sat here now. 2020 is almost upon us. Uh, would you ever have thought that your life's work would have been this motorcycle? Because oh. really, you you are, and you know, you're not going to you're going to totter and you're going to chudder and say, "Oh no, no, no!" You're one of, if not the world's leading expert on this motorcycle. Oh, I think that's pushing it a bit too fast, but thank you for the compliment. I'll, yeah, but I'll you take are. That. I'll take that. <laughs> yeah, but you are. But how the heck? How the heck did well, that happen? With Hondas. I mean, I could have been I could have been Dave Silver. I started with Hondas in 1975. That was my first bike, and I was a Honda man. I was parked outside Queen's Park Motors in Salford. First big bike I ever rode was a 404, and that's that's a brilliant did, introduction. Did it seem big at the time because it would be very yeah. big now, would it? Well, no, yeah. but at the time. But that's a fantastic yeah. introduction to yeah, uh, a big bike. You know, coming from yeah. like 50s and 125s yeah. and 250s. The first four-cylinder motorcycle I ever rode. Such a friendly bike, yeah. way more handling and braking than performance. Yeah. And so you could find yourself halfway around a bend and think, "Oh, this is terribly wrong." <laughs> and and the bike would help you out instead of something like a Z9, where or, or God forbid, a, a Kawasaki two-stroke triple, oh, which, yes. which would just <laughs> throw you off, yes. throw you at the, the widowmaker, throw you at the landscape as soon as look at you. Which do you not think that's why maybe they're so popular these days because they're they're they're, uh, they're um, not a scary motorcycle anymore. Um, born again bikers, which I hate that term, but but yeah, that you know average age of, of motorcyclists is in the late forties, early fifties now. So if they're going back to motorcycling, they want something that they remember from their day. The heyday was was nineteen seventy five. From a Kawasaki point of view, most people remember. 1975 models yeah because uh, it was a good year for, for motorcycles um so they want something round about that era uh so they buy something like that and they feel safe with it uh, they don't have to do 150 miles an hour because they don't want to do 100. in fact you can't do 150 miles an hour these days uh you're looking to do 50 around around some parts of uh, this country um so they feel safe with them um the triples i mean we deal a lot with the triples but they only, they don't seem to get ridden much they seem to be more short <laughs> You oh, you do, you do surprise me. <laughs> the Z1s, people, you know, they, I mean, yeah, they only take them out on a Sundays and to the uh, occasional rally. But they feel safe on them. They feel at home, you know, and, and that's part of it. Because when you get to the, in your mid-50s, uh, suddenly um, you find yourself uh, slowing down, is the term, I think, um, considering I things. Yeah, I don't know. It, it, it's... Well, it's the reason you said. I mean, you can't go fast, can you? It's, I mean, the brakes aren't up to it, so you've got to you've got to tune your head into going at a speed that you know you can stop at. And of course, modern cars, even cheap modern cars, they go really fast and they stop really well. But so, are you are you okay with resto modding, as it's called? If somebody wants to ride a Z one on the road, yeah. are you happy if people fit upside down forks and better brakes and? Yeah, yeah. What's the best? What, what's the most popular modern riding modification for a Kawasaki Z1? Well, what needs improving? What we, if you could go back and be in that boardroom yeah. in nineteen seventy or whatever it was yeah. when they finally signed off the design, you could say, "Hold on, lads, there's one thing that you need to fix before you actually put this out to the public." 
it's got a bit of brakes. Yeah. It's got a bit of brakes. I mean, with modern tyres, they don't want handle as bad as people think. In fact, we sell the original tyres. Uh, the Dunlop Gold Seals, even though they're not like 40-year-old tyres, they're, they're modernly made. Uh, but they're quite impressive. You know, they handle quite well. Uh, the road holding is excellent. And the suspension is reasonable. Uh, but the brakes are just horrific. <laughs> but we do sell a double-disc brake conversion, which, which Kawasaki did. Yeah, does it not overwhelm the folks, Dave? This is the thing, and this yeah. is the thing that we all had to learn as yes. we were coming up. We all put double disc conversions and then thought, damn it, the folks, the yeah. folks bottom out the second I look at the brake lever. Yeah. Well, we yeah, that was always going to happen. Yeah, but there's still companies like Hagen who sell uh, heavy-duty springs, which they're not heavy-duty springs as such, they're just uh, a much better spring. They probably only work because they knew rather than like 40 odd years old. But with the correct grade of fork oil and a good set of forks, springs, uh, you can tune them quite well. Uh, but you can see the attraction of all these Japanese custom uh, websites uh, with upside down forks, oh, yeah. and a single sided swing arm, um, which, tend, which makes you believe that no matter which one you see, it's always got the original engine in there with nothing covering it up so you can still see it. It's always got the original clocks because that's another. Hmm. and it's always got the tailpiece no matter what they do to the rest of it that, that is a Kawasaki Z1 and that's what makes a Kawasaki Z1 and if you look at like the Z900 RS that's exactly what they've done Kawasaki the new one yeah that, yeah yeah they've kept they kept the distinctive design yeah. features of yeah. it but well that, that's what I was going to move on to I was going to say if somebody was going to modify one would you not say don't do that just buy one of these new ones that looks like it and if you want to ride it and then keep your Z1 yeah. completely well, standard. Most people have. I think if you, if you look at Kawasaki's sales figures for that Z900 RS, it's been an excellent seller for them. But let's get in perspective. You know, they've probably sold 100 in a month. You know, it's, it's not like the car world where they sell 100 a day. But they've done quite well with it. And I would say that every owner has probably got an old Kawasaki at home. Yeah, uh, we went through the same with the ZRX 1100 and 1200. Most people who bought one of those in the uh, mid 90s also had an old bike, an old Kawasaki. I had the Yamahas, I had the XJRs. Yeah, well, it's, I had the. Yeah. They felt a bit big and yeah. heavy and cumbersome. And cum cumbersome. That's exactly yeah. the word that I was searching for, Dave. Yeah, yeah, that's all they were, weren't they? But I mean, that's what we were used to. And I always say to people, especially people of our age, that if you were brought up on that type of bike. You can ride anything. An R1 or a ZX10 is a doddle after that. Yeah, it's weird. When you... I mainly drive... I mean, my daily drive is a 1983 Citroen, right? And it's a big car as well. So when I get in a modern car, everything just seems so easy. Because yeah, I'm used to having to look ahead and think ahead and all that sort of stuff. I mean, it's not terrible. It's an 83 Citroen CX, yeah. but it's a very advanced car for its time. Yeah, it was, yeah. So yeah. it's got ABS, yeah. um, you know, and it's... Your pneumatic it's, brakes. It's got, it's, got, it's got good road holding. It's got decent suspension, but it's not a modern car where at the last second you can change your mind and yeah. everything will be okay. You've got to look ahead and you've got exactly. you've got to drive it. You've got to actually drive it just like you've got yeah, to ride yeah. those old bikes. And, and isn't that what it's about? Or is it? I don't know. Perhaps I've wiggled. I mean, we, we, our generation is probably going to be the last of the petrol heads. From now on, it's going to be... Oh, Dave, don't, don't what, say that. Be, what are they going to call them? <laughs> Volt heads? Ampigeds? I mean, well, it's all going to go electric and, and they'll lose all that. I, I think there are... All kinds of reasons why young people and people say people who like 
post on the Facebook page or they'll get in touch with me and they'll say, oh, no, my lad's obsessed with bikes and this, that, and the other. I go, what about his friends? Mm. They go, no, it's just him. I go, yeah, it's and just it's him. To the Back door, in the day, it was all of us. Oh, no, right. Well, not quite all of us, but it was a, a, a much... Well, it was everybody you knew. It was everyone because you knew. that's all you knew. You knew yeah. all your friends who had bikes. Yeah. Well, my connection to my mates was through bikes, scooters, whatever car we had, minis, yeah. you know, all that sort of stuff. So there probably was a group of people who didn't have any interest in that sort of thing. Mm. But we just didn't know them. No, exactly. We didn't we were in our circle. So you started with Hondas. I did. I started with a 250 CB250 G5 Honda, which I bought new from Queen's Park Motors in Salford, which, uh, <laughs> yeah. which was one of the big dealers of the time, if you remember. Uh, and then I went back there to buy, and don't laugh, a CB500T. Do you remember those little beauties? Mm, I remember the CB500. Orange, orange yeah. brown seats. Orange with the brown seats, oh, fantastic. Anyway, I, I, was, I was at Queen's Park there, ready with my money to buy one. Very fashionable that now, Dave. Yeah, well, it you could go to the bike shed on your orange bike yeah, with the brown yeah, seat yeah, and you'd correct. fit right in. It's all come back, those colours now, haven't they? Yeah. So uh, while I were there, ready to put my deposit down, I... 75 Z1B turned up and parked up on the car. What the, colour? Uh, it was a red one, funny enough, uh, which is not the popular one now, the blue one is. And I just looked at it in, in the sunlight and I just put my money back in my pocket and went straight <laughs> over to Deansgate, which is just around the corner from here, of course, to Not Mill Motorcycles, who yeah. were the Kawasaki dealer at the time. Yeah, they were. Uh, and put me deposit on there, unfortunately. By the time I'd... I mean, I was, we were stupid in those days. I mean, I should have just bought it on HP, but, I mean, that was a mm. bad word on it for us in, in the 70s, HP. So I went down there every week and put, like, 20... Well, you had, to get, you had to get somebody to sign, didn't you? A guarantor, yes. Yeah, you had, to, get, you had to persuade your mum and dad that, that they had to sign so that if you didn't pay, yeah. uh, they'd have to pay instead. Yeah. And I, I remember having that tricky conversation yeah, when I bought my first new bike from... R.W. Horner of Brooks Bar, oh, Manchester. Yes, yeah, yeah. Yes, yes, yes. When I bought my first new bike from there, I had to persuade mum and dad because I that that I would pay, and I did. Yeah, I did, I, I, and I had to pay the deposit. But you know, it was always a tough conversation. So you didn't do that; you just bought it outright, yeah. Yeah, well, it was it was like a Saturday club. I used to go in to see uh, Arthur Arthur Arnold, who was the boss at Not Mill in those days, and every week I'd give him twenty or thirty quid. You know, no receipts or nothing, you know, you just give it 20, 30 quid. By the time I'd saved up enough to buy it, which was about 1,600 quid, uh, and Partex me under, uh, they replaced uh, the Z900, which is what I wanted, with, a, with the Z1000. So that was 1977. So I was, I was saving up for over a year. Um, so I ended up with the Z1000. And funny enough, that, that Z1000 proved to be a little bit unreliable. And I spent that much time at Not Mill. Arthur Arnold, the boss, says, Dear Dave, you hear that much, I'll have to give you a job. I said, well, why is there a job? He says, well, there is actually in the parts. And that's how I started in the That's day. it. An incredible Isn't life. Isn't it funny? Life. That changed your life. Yeah, and that was it. I mean, I could have easily just carried on with Hondas and, you know, might have come to nothing. But as it was, I ended up with Kawasaki's and that, that became my life. Mm. Odd. And the part that actually failed uh, was a little idler rubber, which is, we still sell a lot of them, actually, uh, which about two, at the time was about 85p. So that 85 85 pence. Sort of made me... What I am today. So when Weird. did you when did you realise that there was going to be a market in old Japanese motorcycles? Because it was a long time before the classic bike, let's call it a community. Yeah. I don't know if it is, but let's call yeah. it that. Here in the UK, where I think classic bikes the term classic bike 
I've got issue one classic bike magazine. Have you? No. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, I've got issue one. It's not on eBay. I've got issue one, and it's it's interesting because the editorial explains why they've started a classic a magazine for classic bikes, and and and, you know saying most of you would just think these are just old bikes, and I think there was an enormous resistance here in the UK from the British bike. A a classic bike was an old British bike or an old German bike or an old Italian bike. What it determinedly was not was an old Japanese bike for a long time. An awful long time. When did you realise that people wanted old Japanese motorcycles and considered them to be classic bikes? That's a strange one because, don't forget, I'm a bit biased because of the Kawasaki thing, but in 1978, I restored my first Kawasaki Z1 which was a 1973 model, and that was only five years old, and people were clamouring to buy it when I'd finished. So it started really early for me, but... And was that modified when you got it? Because, of course, the, how often would you then acquire a bike that was standard very, well, very infrequently? Well, this was standard, because don't forget in those days, there wasn't that many aftermarket parts, all the American parts, which... Four into ones and Kirka and, and Super Trap and, and all yeah. the rest of it, and King and Queen seats and things like that <laughs> weren't uh, SW shops. I bought a Honda with a, a King and Queen seat on it, and I thought I'll be able to sell that. I'll put a standard saddle on it, and I put a two four accessories, yeah, two four seats, yeah, yeah, remember them? yeah, yeah, yeah. fastback seat on this Honda. And then tried to sell the King and Queen seat for years. You Guess, it, you've probably still got it now. If I still had it. The kids, as we would call them, yeah. the sort of 20-somethings and 30-something hipsters, they would be going mental for that seat. I'll tell you for why. Yeah. It was black with a gold metal flake top, oh, deep-buttoned with gold metal flake. Uh, They'd love that, wouldn't they? Yeah. Mm. Couldn't get rid of it back in the day. That, that should be up for a second or two, thinking about that. But, Dave, no, nobody else was restoring Japanese motorcycles no, in 1978. No. I mean, at the time, uh, it was just one of the... But, when I started the Not Mill in 1977, the first thing I realised was how much interest it was in the old triples. Even though, I mean, up to 1976, you could still buy one. The last triple was the KH500 A8. But there were people spending money to restore them. The triple with the ripple. Exactly, yeah, yeah. Um, and that made me think at that time, you know, there's something going on here, you know. Like, nobody was queuing up to restore on the 750s or anything like that. Mm-hmm. Um, so... I realised early on, but we started the Vintage Japanese Motorcycle Club. I was one of the first members of that. We started up in early 1981, so there's there's a good uh, milestone. Yeah. Uh, by that time, there was there was about six or seven of us, all all sorts of specialists, who, or have become specialists since then. And, and which minute. which bikes initially were people restoring? It was Kawasaki triples, Kawasaki triples, uh, Bridgestones. Right. Anything old Japanese, you know, like Lilacs and Megora. Black Bombers, that, was, that sort of stuff. Yeah, CB450, Black Bombers. Anything that was uh, any of the old Ondas, really, of the 60s, uh, or if you had, like, an early 50 dream, which there was a few around, uh, they were the ones to go for. Uh, but, of course, things progressed, and by the time we got to the 90s, people were restoring uh, early 1980s bikes, uh, so that we'd moved on to, like, GPZs, which seems strange. Well, again, I'd say, you know, the, the Kawasaki Z1 was a game changer. Yeah. The GPZ900R yeah, was exactly, a game changer. Yeah, exactly, yeah. Uh, GPZ900R, I mean, I've spent the last 20 years trying to increase the value by... Because <laughs> you've, like, you've got a lot of them. But it just didn't happen. But um, 
So you're there in your shop staring at a lot of parts on the shelf for GPZ yeah. and others and thinking... Every article, I mean, people in the magazine will ring me up and say, Dave, what's, what's this month's uh, big thing? And I say, oh, yes, it's the, uh, the Z650. <laughs> <laughs> GPZ900, hoping, you know, it'd catch on. Z650, that was a good bike. It was okay, an excellent do, bike. Do you, know what, do you know what word I think of when I think of the Z650? Honest. That's a good, honest yeah. motorcycle, yeah. isn't it? It was. It, we... We sold many Z650s to people who were downgrading from Z1000s. Hmm. Once they'd ridden it, we're, it was 1978, 79. Oldish, you know what I say, oldish. I, yeah, I know what's going on there. I know what's going on there. They got married. Yeah, probably. There was a kid on the way. Yeah. But they were unwilling to completely to give, give up motorcycling. Yeah. They couldn't really justify using a Z1 to commute, no. but they could justify using a Z650. Yeah, yeah. And so they were using yeah, it, putting fair, a lot yeah. of miles on it, but yeah. they would not relinquish their grip yeah. on a motorcycle. But, again, it's one of them, as you say, an honest bike, which I don't think will ever, ever be worth a great deal of money, mainly because there was a lot of them. You know, there was a lot of models. Mm-hmm. Um, a bit like the GPZ900, they did, like, 15 years' worth of them. So that tends to... Um, stop people from thinking that they're a classic bike because well there's a lot there's a lot of old jags like that where if i know the old jag that you're looking at on ebay that's going for 1500 quid was italian and had a strange badge on it that you couldn't quite name that you couldn't quite pronounce Mm. you could put zeros on the end but because it was popular at the time and they sold loads of them and now there are loads of them i've just sold a reliance scimitar 1969 reliance scimitar se5 a very early one for Next to nothing, really. I've yeah. managed to sort of get my money back. But I'm the thinking, Rover engine or the Ford engine? No, the Ford Essex, right. three litre. And I'm thinking, again, this was Italian and it had an exotic yeah, badge yeah, on it. Yeah. You could add noughts because when I drove it, it was a great car to drive. Weighed just under a tonne. You've got about 150 horsepower at that three litre Essex. Four speed manual box with overdrive. Yeah. Loads of low end grunt. Makes a great sound. Looks great, but worth nothing because... Yeah. At the time, popular, they sold loads of them. There's still loads of them knocking about on the yeah, second-hand market. Get more for Reliant Robin. Yeah. Well, sometimes it's rarity. It, yeah, it's not it the quality of the machine no. that makes it valuable. It's the rarity of the yeah. machine. Well, that's proven in the Kawasaki range with, like, the 750 Twin. In 1978, we saw three of them. Three brand-new 750 Twins. We could right. give them away. And yet now, people are like, oh, it's a very rare classic motor. The only reason they were rare is nobody wanted them. Well, that, unfortunately, is is the truth for a lot of things, isn't it? It's yeah. like um, in music, if you collect records, um, and I have collected records in my time, not now, but the rarest records are often... It's not the Beatles, it's not Elvis, yeah. it's not... You know, it's not the Rolling Stones. It's someone you've never heard of who ended up working as a caretaker because, guess what, he wasn't very good. <laughs> and so they only printed a few hundred of whatever it was... Yeah. And most of them got thrown away. Yeah, rarity, I guess. Rarity. Yeah, yeah. Rarity is no indication of quality, is it? No, no. No, that's so, proven time and time again in the in the classics. Well, the classic anything, classic bikes, classic cars. MGs. MGs. I, I, I had never owned one, and I write about classic cars, and a pal of mine called me, MGBs I'm talking about here. Yeah. Um, a pal of mine called me. I was at a music festival. And he said, I need a, an MG, for, it was for a film. He said, I need an MG for a film, because uh, I do a little bit of that on the sidecars, bikes, for films and television sometimes. Yeah. Um, can you get me one quick? I said, yep, no problem. Within two hours, I bought an MG on the phone, because I saw it on a popular internet auction site, 
and uh, I, I'm going to confess this. I think I've mentioned this before. Somebody was bidding against me. It was very low, very low amount of money. It wasn't in the best condition. But I'd had a few drinks. I was at a music festival. Oh, and so I put a million pound bid on it. <laughs> and then I didn't remember I'd done it. I woke up the next day and the first thing I thought was, did I put a million pound bid on that? What, as a typo or a, no, I, I got annoyed. Was, right. I got annoyed because the auction only had a couple of hours to yeah, run. Yeah, so yeah. I I'd put like a thousand pounds on and then somebody went to 1100 and I went to 1250 and then somebody went to 1300. So I went to 1500 and they went to, and I was like, right, a million pounds. Right, go on, mate. <laughs> bid that right. up. So I woke up in the morning. The first thing I thought was, did I bid a million pounds on an old rusty MGB? And I was very lucky. I got it just under two thousand. It, it it worked and it ran and it and it did the and it it did the job. But unfortunately, uh, this old friend of mine, he's still a friend, curiously, called me and said, oh, "I don't need that MGB. Is that okay?" And I was like, "Mate, I've bought one." So I thought I might as well use it. Yeah. So I drove it round for about a summer, and I kind of realised why it was successful. It wasn't overly powerful. It wasn't the best looking car I've ever owned. It wasn't the most practical car I've ever owned, but it was kind of good at more or less everything. Yeah, yeah, and yeah. back in the day, one thing that would have made it hugely popular, and it's one thing that a lot of journalists forget when they or writers forget when they talk about cars and bikes, was the price. Yeah, it was cheap. You know, guess what? Old Ferraris are really good, and old Porsches are really good. Do you know why? They're bloody expensive when they were yeah, new. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, they were. Yeah, unfortunately. Well, fortunately, really, motorcycles were, were cheap, I, I guess. So, was it a bargain the Z1 when it came out? Well, I don't know. I've tried to work it out in the um, in the units of the old Mars bar. You know how much was a Mars bar in nineteen seventy one? Yeah, they do the cheeseburger as well, don't they? They oh, do right, right. McDonald's right. cheeseburgers right, yeah. and, and Mars bar. The Mars bars. Yeah, are, how yeah. many Mars bars exactly. could you have bought for so the same amount of money? For me many years ago, and it was more or less the same. You know, it was about up there with with what a modern bike was costing. Um, so, so what the equivalent in seventy three? The equivalent of what ten or eleven, twelve thousand pounds now? Yeah. Something like that. Yeah, which is a Z nine hundred RS is is ten and a bit. Yeah. So uh, it's about about the same. Um, the only problem is I can't see bikes now being worth any. Well, I mean, it's hard to say. I mean, I mean, uh, said nine hundred RS. I mean, I actually I actually thought of buying a few and leaving them in the crate, and thinking I'll keep them for like twenty five years. Then I thought, hang on, twenty five years. You know, I'll have to give it to my kids, and what would they do with it? Do you know what, Dave? I I I was with a friend the other day, and he has. Uh, a substantial quantity of old 1970s Fords, which right now is a really good thing yeah, to have. Yeah. But I urged him to sell, urged him to sell. And he said, no, 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 maybe sort of 15, 20 years' time. I'm like, no, mate, forget that. No. Because this generation, our generation, yeah. has a huge fondness for that era, yeah. the 1970s. Yeah. And whilst I don't think that bona fide high-end classics. So in the bike world, you're talking Vincent Black Shadow, Bruce Superior, 1970s Ducati SS. In the car world, you're talking about 30s Bugattis, yeah. 50s Ferraris, 60s E-Type Jaguars. The prices of those aren't going to go down. They are icons. Yeah. They're all-time classics. Some of the other stuff is strictly generational. Somebody's yeah. just paid £37,000 for a Peugeot 205 GTI. That's not going to happen in 10 or 20 no, years' time no. because that's a very specific yeah. memory that people have yeah. 
of that vehicle in its time, yeah. and that's why they're willing to pay that money. Nobody from my son's generation, he's 23 years old, none of them are going to pay no. the thick end of 40 grand for a Peugeot no. shopping car with well, wide wheels. They're just in doing things and having things, aren't they? That's, that's that is very perceptive of you. Yeah. Mate. That's almost philosophical. To do things, you've got to have the things to do them on, and I know that you've done some pretty epic journeys on, on Kawasaki's. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I can't see... We're getting back. We're getting Dave, back. that was the bit where you get to tell us about the epic journeys oh, that you've well, done. I've been around the world. Well, you times. have. I have actually. Yeah, I drove around the world in 2004 with with that other madman, Nick Sanders, um, circling all the way around the world. Uh, Nick was one of my heroes. It's, the funny thing is, he's only he's only. A, Steve, he was my hero. You know what they say about meeting your heroes? Yeah, you should. He was one of my him. heroes. You should never meet him. The thing the thing is, um, Nick's only a bit older than me, but I remember. Him, he used. Do you remember when he used to ring into the to the nightly news on Granada Television? So here in the northwest of England, we had this nightly news show that was at six thirty, and it was presented for a long time by this guy called Bob Greaves. And he used to be, and it was really boring, and everything was beige and brown, and everything was a problem. It was just all about factories. Clo- it was the seventies. It was about factories closing down, the dismantling of the industry here in the northwest of England, where the industrial revolution began. And it was about murder and horrible things. But every so often, Tony Wilson would have a band on, like Joy Division or something yeah. like that, which was amazing. I don't even know how he did that. Or Nick would be on one of his journeys, initially on a bicycle, yeah, a bicycle around the world. Yeah. And he'd phone into the studio, and you'd hear this crackly phone line, and Bob would go, where are you, Nick? And he'd go, I'm in Kazakhstan, Bob. Like this, and you'd think, I'd be like running for the Atlas. I'm thinking, how has he got from Manchester to there on a bicycle? How is that even possible? Yeah, you can't take that away from him. And he is a madman, but you can't take that away from his his devotion to uh, to travelling uh, single-handedly is is incredible. But I, here's the thing: coming back to what to what we're talking about, and I, I must get Nick in as a guest here because he's got so many stories to tell about what he's done on motorcycles. But the point of bikes wasn't to really... It, it kind of was to own an object, because obviously you wanted to show... You know, young men want to show off to their friends and they want to attract girls or boys, whatever. Whatever floats your boat, fine. That's what you want to do. But then it becomes about, right, how far can we go? Because remember, when we got... Me and my friend Nigel Harrison got bicycles for Christmas. The first thing we did as very young boys was set off for the next town, which was like 10 miles away. Yeah. We got there and we thought we, we thought we were going to fall off the edge of the world. You know? <laughs> It was like, so of course, then later on when we got motorbikes, we thought, right, where can we go? And we headed off to, you know, 100 miles, 200 miles. And then, of course, like you, you think, right, I want to go around the world. Yeah. Like you and in Charlie. That's why that was so popular, wasn't it? Exactly, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's most, most motorcyclists at some point think they're going to go around the world. Um, and just as well, really, otherwise BMWs say... <laughs> Wasn't it weird when Ewan and Charlie did that? And I say Ewan and Charlie because I actually do know them. And uh, I actually asked Ewan McGregor. I had a script for a film about the life of Mike Halewood. Okay. Um, And I actually was talking to Ewan McGregor about it. I'm not saying I know Ewan McGregor. I've met him a few times. So I said to him, come on, Ewan. You you should play Mike Halewood. And he was going, "Mm," and I said, it's the hair, isn't it? Or rather the lack of it. Uh, Because, of course, Mike Halewood for me, the greatest motorcycle racer of all time, went bald really early on, didn't he? And was in was in denial about it for a long time. So there were all sorts of... If you look back at pictures of him, in the early 60s, he looked so cool yeah. as, a, as a young man. 
And then when his hair started to grow, you start to think, oh, Mike, for God's sake, just shave it all off. It's, it's all that wearing of helmets. My mother told me that once. She says, ooh, all that motorcycle helmets, you'll lose it. She was right, look. She was right, look at both of us, look at the pair of us. Damn helmets. So how did you get away with going around the world? Because presumably by then you sort of married and got a family and all that sort of stuff. Yeah, yeah. Um, how did you get away with it? I don't know, I keep pinching myself, thinking, how in the heck did I do that? Hello, uh, darling. Yes, um, I've decided to yeah. ride round the world on a motorbike. Early enough, when I met my wife, Michelle, absolutely wonderful girl, she realised quite soon I was devoted to motorcycles. You know, it was... She never did try to change, but she knew that that was my life and she mm. either would have to live with it or put up with it or, or whatever. Um, so I'd been going everywhere. I'd been I'd done all the usual, south of France, you know, all the way across Europe, all the usual things that you did, you know, in the 80s. Um, but I always wanted to go around the world. Uh, I set off once on a W650, uh, which we got from Kawasaki, they sponsored Great bike. Excellent bike. Unfortunately, one of them blew up in Sweden, so we, uh, we had to uh, stop and come back. So... Uh, I just happened then to to uh, meet Nick Sanders at uh, his first ever Moto GB Challenge, which was like a a quiz round a quiz and a ride round around the UK. Uh, and I know I knew he'd been around the world a few times. Yeah, because uh, as I've just said, he used to be on the yeah, news. Yeah. He started doing it on bicycles, and then as he got older, he switched yeah, to motorbikes. Yeah, yeah, he did it on a ride round. Holds the which, uh, holds the world record for going around the quickest round the world, doesn't he? Nine, well, he, uh, he thinks he does. <laughs> I think he does, but you know. There's so many people who say, no, oh, that's not right, you know, people have done it. 19 days, I mean, that's pretty quick. I mean, in reality, it isn't 19 days because you don't count the days you're not riding. Yeah. But uh, we did it in three months, uh, and to be honest, some days we were doing a 1,000 miles a day. A 1,000 mile days. Some days we were sat on our bottoms waiting for customs and officials. So what bike would you choose? did you do it on well, land, Dave? My first choice was a BMW, uh, a GS, of course. Ah, very wise. Uh, but then I started thinking... At the time, they were about £11,000, and I thought, you know, if something happens to this bike, I'd, 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 I'd be loath to leave it anywhere. I don't want to bring yeah. it back. So you I are a disposable motorcycle, yeah, so I started looking lower down, down the... Uh, ended up with a Suzuki V-Strom, a brand-new Suzuki V-Strom, which I still got, um, which at the time were only about £5,500. So that's a 1,000cc V-twin. Was it the engine that was in the TL1000? Yeah, it's the same engine. Because I had a I had a Kajiva Navigator and that had that engine. Yeah, same engine, D-tune. So I bought that, theory being that if it all turned to poo, I could just set it on fire. Bury it somewhere. Five and a half grand, you know, price of a push bike. But... It absolutely was the best bike I'd ever ridden. I know it's a Suzuki, but I actually badged it up as a Kawasaki. You didn't? I did. Really? Actually, a year later, Kawasaki brought out the KLV 1000, which was a rebadged Suzuki V-Strom. But at that time, I painted it green, put Kawasaki badges on it, which caused a few problems in a few countries because they were looking at the uh, logbook and going, uh, Suzuki uh, DL uh, Kawasaki. So it's Kawasaki on that tank. So eventually, I just learned to put duct tape over all the badges okay, yeah. and we got to a customs. It was a good idea when you were back in uh, back home in your it was, workshop. It was an excellent but, idea, yes. But then when you were at a border crossing in yes. some remote part of the world That's and they right. were... And of course I painted it green with a Union Jack on it. Yeah. A, a bit like the old... Uh, Military, when, like an Armstrong. Well, or no, a, a bit like when Jack Valentine was running the uh, the Triumphs in the uh, superbikes and, right. and they put that uh, Union Jack on the front. So I did that thinking, you know, British... Uh, that could have been a mistake. Yeah, because there was many be a mistake. time I found myself at the back of many queues. <laughs> and I'm thinking, is this because I've got British on here? Yes, Dave, it is. Yeah, yeah, yeah. 
we yes. we do have a checkered history around the world, don't we? Yes, some we people do, yeah. love us, and yes. some people really don't. Well, when you look into it, I mean, we've invaded most of them countries I visited, and I thought, oh yeah, maybe it's better not to. Uh, maybe uh, some of them have bought a British Leyland car back in the uh, yeah, BSA Bantam. BSA Bantam. It was payback. So the the Suzuki held up around the world. It did. It uh, it did marvelous. In fact, of the forty eight bikes that set off, only ten of us actually made it round the world. Wow. But that's how it was meant to be. There were people doing stages. Uh, but there was just me and a good friend of mine, Chris Sully, on a ZXR 1200. We were the only two bikes that didn't break down. There were numerous BMWs lying at the side. Really? The road. Yes, just with various electrical faults. And uh, But that, mine and the Kawasaki were the only ones that didn't need any attention at all, apart from tyres. At one point, doing a 1,000 miles a day, we were changing tyres every, every four days. Every four days, yeah. wow. And that was struggling sometimes when we was in, uh, when we was in Alaska. Finding tyres, you know, it's just because in America, as you, as you know, people don't do many miles, you know, they don't, you can't buy discount tyres in America because there's no market for tyres, everything's full price, and they ship them in from somewhere else. So we'd spend a day or so just waiting for, for tyre deliveries. Uh, the same in uh, Southeast Asia. You needed a tyre there, and you know, unless you had a little scooter or a 50cc. Uh, I mean, if you had a scooter and a 50cc, they'd make your tyre, you know, out of leads. But uh, once you needed a proper sized tyre, you was waiting days. Did that get the wanderlust out of your blood? Once you'd done that, did you think, right, that's that, I'm not doing that again? You know, it didn't. <laughs> it didn't. One of the things that it showed me was that the motorcycle stopped becoming a, a pleasure and it became a tool. The bike was just there to get me around the world. Uh, the first couple of weeks I spent like polishing the bike and you know looking at it and taking pictures of it. By the time we'd got to the middle of the bush in Australia, the Northern Territories, it was just a tool to do the job mm. on. Uh, mm. Of course, we still looked after the bikes, but uh, suddenly it was just a, a tool. It was there. Well, people ask me about the cars and bikes sometimes, and uh, they're, they're quite surprised when they say, what's the, what's the best bike you've ever had? I say, Kawasaki Versus. Yeah, because I've had yeah. I've had and the Augustas, Ducatis, Triumphs. I've had ev- all kinds of bikes, but the best two wheel machine for moving me yeah. and my stuff, whatever it was, from A to B, economically, reliably, safely, was a Kawasaki Versus. But the six fifty. Yeah, but by God, yeah. what a boring motorcycle! But exactly. right, boring, yeah, but. That. So reliable, so yeah. practical, so comfortable, so useful. Yeah. It, when you say best, it all depends on what criteria you're putting on that, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, it does, yeah. yeah. Horses for courses. I went to Timbuktu on a Versi 650. In Mali? Yes. I know somebody that got killed going there. Yeah, well, a few people got killed. Not when on our on our trip, but there was a few people before. It was just when they cancelled the the, uh, the Dakar. That yeah. year they cancelled and a few uh, people had been killed in uh, a leg which we went through there. So uh, it was a time of... Uh, well, in fact, you can't even go now, can you, to Timbuktu? It's, it's so unsafe. But I think we were the last in 2008. Sort of, that could go, actually go on one of the next trips. After that, it proved too dangerous. What's the best biking country that you found on your trip, there? Where, where, where was it easiest to enjoy your motorcycle? You know, people have said that to me, and the more I've thought about it, the more I keep thinking, Scotland. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's just, really? Yeah, there's nothing in Scotland that that you can't see, that you haven't seen. You know, I mean, you go to Alaska and you see those, 
you see trees and you think all these people complaining that you know we've got no trees you ride for seven days in Alaska and all you see is trees and you think oh you know there's no tree shortage here uh, but you see these wonderful lakes and beautiful mountains but you can see them in Scotland yeah so people and if it breaks down the AA or the RAC will come and get you <laughs> <laughs> on that didn't break down but uh, Southeast Asia uh, absolutely beautiful uh, wonderful country the old you know Thailand Cambodia absolutely superb um, but mainly because it's different you know it's jungle uh, Australia absolutely superb I mean I'm from originally from Australia so when, when I went I didn't back, know that yes I'm from Australia I didn't come to England until uh, 1966 the weekend of the World Cup well, that was a good time to come, wasn't it? It was. I wasn't no I didn't even know what football was. We didn't have football in Australia in those days. Uh, yeah, I came from the uh, Northern Territories to Ashton Underline. Wow. Uh, <laughs> That's a hell of a culture clash, isn't it? I remember looking out of the uh, three o'clock in the afternoon, completely black, smog, fog, and thinking, "What the heck have they brought me back here to?" Uh, and I've been here ever since. But I have been back to Australia a few times on the bike, uh, mainly to show Michelle, which is one of the other things I've done. I went around the world by myself, and then I've spent the last 10 years going back to all these places with Michelle, my wife, on the bike to show her where I've been. So it's got to be, it's got to be, what, 10 years ago now when you and Charlie did the long way around and, and kicked off a whole, a huge boom. Yeah, in, well, in they, they, was, they did it at about the same time, about 2004, 2005, wasn't it, which... Uh, that was the boom of the, the adventure scene. I think um, the BMW GS became the best-selling motorcycle. It still is. In the UK. Yeah, it still is, every month. It's, I mean, it gets... I mean, the Africa Twin's overtaking it, but only on... Goodbye, When that. you look at the CC, I've got one. That new Africa yeah, Twin. I've got a new one, Fantastic. the DCT one, the automatic. Um, what do you think of that? It's good, because I've got a 12, 1250 GS as well, so I can compare them, you know, I can give you, I can give you a road test, you know, in, in my head. Um, the Africa Twin's just lighter, and it is better. Um, but then the GS, if I've got Michelle on the back, is much better. You know, mm. it's horses for courses. It's, but yeah, the Africa Twin is a superb bike. I've had three of them now. Uh, in fact, I'm just uh, just going to get the new 1100 uh, quite soon. Excellent bike. Um, I never had one of the old 750s. You know, the V twins. Mm. Uh, I wish I had now because, of course, I was always biased towards Kawasaki. Uh, it was only around about 2010 I started buying other makes, realizing what I've been missing all these years. Um, but yeah, good good bike, Africa Twin. But GS is a good bike. Um, it's horses for courses, like I keep saying. It depends what you what you're thinking of doing. But yeah, the adventure scene it just went bananas after that uh, Charlie thing, isn't it? Well, they've got a new yeah, they're doing it on that um, electric bike, yeah, aren't they? Harley Davidson Livewire thing. Yeah. So um, that'd be interesting to see. You know, how many times they have to stop to uh, to shove a bit of charge in them. The interesting thing, the interesting thing to me about the bike show um, this year was the the huge number of electric bikes yeah. that were there. But yeah. I think, in a way, it will have to. There'll have to be a Tesla of the bike world. Yeah. yeah. And I don't know if it's there yet. Well, I rode a Zero many, many years ago when it first came out in America, and the f my first impression was, "Whoa, this is heavy! I can get it off the side stand." Mm -hmm. But once you were on it, I mean, it was great. You know, it was just yeah. like riding a Goldwing. Really, if, you know, you think it's going to weigh a thousand ton, which they do. But once you get them moving, they're quite good. And um, I thought, yeah, yeah, you know, this is good. No noise, no gears. But uh, I thought, yeah, I could get used to this. But it's just that range for someone like me who do a lot of miles. It's a non-starter. I mean, like you said, we need a game changer. We need. I don't know what we need. We need some 
alien intervention on, on batteries. Well, I think we had, I had as a guest a few weeks ago, I had my old boss, John Bentley, who was the producer of Top Gear um, for virtually all the time that I was there, right through the 90s. And he's now best known as a presenter of The Gadget Show oh, on right, Channel yeah, 5. Yeah. Even though, you know, that was so weird. When, like, your boss, who's never been on TV in his whole life, suddenly sort of... It's almost like the dog talks to you one day, or, you know... <laughs> it's like, you're like, what the hell? Seeing John on TV, because he'd been my boss, you know, yeah. he was in his office, at his big office, and you had to go and see him. And all. Yeah. He, was, he was an exec, and then all of a sudden, now, he's, he's, he's well-known as a presenter. And he's written a really good book called Autopia, about the future of personal transportation. Okay. And I I'm, I'm think, having read that and thought about it quite a lot, I'm with John, I think the future isn't just electric, it isn't just hydrogen fuel cells, it isn't just hybrids, it's everything. Yeah. I think everything will exist at the same time. We'll have internal combustion, we'll have electric, we'll have hybrids, we'll have hydrogen fuel cells, and they'll all exist at the same time. Because you're talking there about riding a 1,000 miles in a, in a day, Dave. Mm. That's... How far are we off with electric bikes before you can ride a thousand miles in a day? It's never going to happen. I can't. Say well, that. it will happen, won't it? But it's not in our not, not in our lifetime. No, no. Yeah. But it would be nice. But it's the batteries, isn't it? It's that yeah, but it's the batteries. But also, what's better than get? I remember I'd been in. I'd been away for six weeks, and I came back, and the day that I arrived at Manchester Airport. I was due to be at a big bike show, which you'll remember, the Rossendale Bike Show. Oh, yeah. yeah, yeah. And they wanted me to give something, some award to somebody, and it's very charitable, great people involved in organising it. So I'd said, yeah. And my wife said, is it, po-, then wife said, is it possible for you to get from the airport to there in time to do it? I said, right, you pick me up, take me home, and I'll jump on the bike, and I'll, I'll get there in time. So I got home. I'd been away for six weeks. I hadn't been on a motorbike. Got on my bike, opened the garage door, Live very close to, to the to the highway, the motorway, yeah. whatever you, you want to call it, wherever you are. And I'll eat. This has got to be fifteen, sixteen years later. I remember maxing my bike through the gears up that to to get there. Yep. And just thinking at the time, even thinking, is there anything better than this? Yeah. Is there really anything better than getting on a big bike? It was a thirteen hundred Yamaha, getting on a big bike. And just hearing that manic scream right there at the, no, top, there is nothing at the, the top of the rev range, and just clicking the next gear and doing it again, and then the whole world just turns into a blur. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you've transported yourself from one place to another place in a time that other people find barely credible. Yeah. Because I got there, and I, I'm not boasting. We've all done this on motorcycles. I looked at my watch and thought, 11 minutes. And I'm not going to say how far it was, yeah. but it was a distance that a lot of people would have gone, you can't get from there to there in yeah, minutes. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah, you can. Motorbike. Yeah, you exactly. know. But just the feel of it, the sound of it, the, the whole sensation. The smell of it. The smell of it, exactly. Gavaretta's and fuel. And we're not going to get that from electric bikes. But does that really matter for this generation? Because they're not going to have been brought up on no. first a 50, then a 125, then a 250, then a big bike, you know, honing out yeah. cylinders, trying to trying to sort of uh, you know reject carburetors that's right yeah reject uh, it for, for altitude yeah uh, funny enough I get, I get quite a few people visiting me and and uh, they go into my garage and they'll, they'll start <laughs> sniffing up and they'll say oh I've missed that because on modern vehicles now with fuel injection you don't smell petrol do you it's, it's, it's contained on old bikes they all smell of petrol and oil because so are all are all the the old the old Kawasaki's are all the are all the old desirable Japanese superbikes. Are they all 
restored? Are there any still lurking in sheds and barns you know, and it's, it's, cellars? It's and incredible. I mean, I started a rumour. I think I, it was me who started the rumour. Way back, going back 20 years, well, 30 years, that there was only ever 30 Z1s brought into this country, which was based on, on my research at the time. Uh, that's the 1973 Z1. Uh, I've actually built more than that myself. And if you look at the Owners Club, there's hundreds of them. Uh, they're not English ones, they're all American ones. That was the big thing. But the, America are running out. It's, it's getting to the point where we are going to run out of bikes to restore, uh, which then people move on to Z650s, which is what I'm hoping, uh, and even the smaller bikes. Um, but, yeah, we're, we're seeing an end. We say at work all the time, oh, the bubble's going to burst. But then we'll sell, like, 30 sets of the original exhaust every month you know, the point of force. Yeah. And where are they going, Dave? Exactly. Where, where well, in the world? Well, no, are you not. All over the world. Tell yeah, me. Yeah, all over the world. All over the world, yeah. Well, yeah. where? Japan, Australia, uh, South Africa, America? Yeah, all them countries. Um, Scandinavia. Scandinavia is a massive uh, wow. market for us. A uh, lot of stuff go there. I think there's taxation laws and things like that and import duties have a, a lot to play with things. But you think, how can there be so many bikes? And then when you look into it, you, you look into a customer profile that we're keeping, they've got 10 bikes. You know, right. They don't have one. They have one of each model and one of each model's colour. Right. So it's an obsession with them. So, well, it's so much easier. It's so much easier with bikes, though, isn't it? Because yeah, they're easy to restore, to store. They're easy to store. They take yeah. up less space and they, yeah. co they cost less. Yeah. How much for a, an absolute on-the-money Z1 now, Kawasaki Z1? Right, OK. Well, that's even that's not as easy as it sounds. Because oh, right. now we're in a bit of a... Uh, um, originality in your position. Right. So a 1972, I mean, I've got a 1972 Z1, which we've got uh, for sale, and that's £30,000. Right. A 73 model, which is uh, obviously the year after, pretty obvious, uh, is only £26,000. Right. And then a 74 model is only £20,000. And that's purely based on rarity, the number, yeah, the yeah, number that the we made. That, that they made. And desirability. The, when I was building bikes to order, um, nowadays, I just build them and sell them as I'm going along. It takes the pressure off you. But when I was building them to order, the most popular one that people wanted was a 1975, which is what we were talking about before. 75 was a good year. Z1B in blue. Because that's the one they remember. Mm. That's the one, you know, they think, Kawasaki. Oh, yeah, I remember seeing one of them. But oh, I remember the orange and brown. Yeah, well, that's the early 73, 70, uh, which is what Kawasaki copied on that first year of the Z900RS. So that's the most uh, valuable one. It's not the best. Obviously, the, right, the yeah. later bikes are better. Mm. Uh, the Z900A4, which was considered the runt of the litter, is actually the best bike. It had the best electrics, best brakes, best carburation. But that means nothing. You know, it, it's all down to uh, originality and uh, how old it is. The first model of any you know, range is usually the most valuable. And where have you found the parts? Where have they... Have they come from where you'd expect them to find them? No. I.e. America and Japan, or have they come from unlikely sources? No, they've come from unlikely sources. I mean, at the moment now, we're making about 30% of the parts. We're reproducing about 30% of the parts that we get far made in the, in the Far East... If that's the right, correct term these days. Uh, Taiwan. Um, well, that's not far from where it came from in the first exactly, place. Yeah. And there are certain motorcycle manufacturers who actually build back there. Yeah, yeah who Triumph, might, who might, to mind. who might put a badge on the side of their motorcycles Triumph. and everything else, but might actually yeah, yeah. produce so much of it. The quality there. of the parts that we have made are super, much better than the originals because really, all things have moved on, haven't they? Yeah, chromin's moved on. You know the way the form metals moved on. So uh, plastics parts, technologies yeah, come on plastic, yeah, leaps and bounds. Exactly. Um, but, but then again, Kawasaki themselves, they they still supply, I would say, 40%, which considering 
the old Japanese theory was that after seven years of the bike going out of production, they would stop making parts. That's what they used to always right. say. That got up to about 10 years or 11 years uh, in the 80s. But considering that, we can still buy lots and lots of parts for 1960s bikes, let alone 1970s bikes. So they're not stupid, the Japanese. They know, you know, if there's a, if there's a market there, they'll, they'll reproduce it. And these parts that we're buying from Japan, uh, not from Kawasaki, they claim to be the people who made them for Kawasaki, because yeah. Kawasaki didn't make everything, of course. Yeah. Uh, and they've started up a little cottage industry, or whatever they would call that in Japan, I don't know. Well, there's a lot of people who worked um, with Lamborghini or Ferrari who now exist around the sort of yeah. Santagata, Modena, Maranello, that, that yeah. triangle, yeah. the supercar triangle there in Italy, yeah. who will help you to restore yeah, your, parts, your yeah. older bike. And the same here with people who work in um, classic motorsport, who all seem to be based in the middle of England right, yeah, yeah, and were formerly employed by Tyrrell or Williams or McLaren or Lotus yeah. or whoever it was and will now enable you to keep that classic race car on the yeah. track because guess what? They know how to make whatever part you need because they made it back in 1964 yeah. or 1974 yeah. or 1984 or whenever it was. You've got a lot of new bikes, Dave, and new yeah. bikes ride Incredibly, I mean, the, the competence of them is, is staggering. Do you ever ride the old Kawasaki's? And, and what do you get out of that that you don't get out of your your brand new Africa Twin or your new Triumph? Well, it's, if I've got to go somewhere and I know I've got to be there and I've got to be there on time, I'll take a modern bike. But if it's just somewhere that I'm going for purely pleasure, then I'll take a Z1. Mm. Because but at the end of the day, the motorcycle's a motorcycle. Uh, it, it doesn't matter what bike I'm on, I'm just happy. I'm just happy on a bike. Yeah, so uh, it's weird, isn't it? <laughs> I'm out in the cold, freezing fog, and, and my eyes are icing up, and people say, what the heck are you doing, Dave? You've got cars. Yeah, well, it's not the same. It's when not you're on a bike, same. it's an event. Yeah. And you arrive there, and you feel as though you've done something, or you've achieved something. Or you've actually got there in one piece is even better. But uh, And just, just finally, we talked about um, Ewan and Charlie's new adventure, and I'm sure that will spur another uh, group of mainly men, I'm sure some women, but mainly men, to set off, to leave their families behind, bye, <laughs> and to go off on some extraordinary journey. Is there a journey left for you that you're uh, determined to complete before you uh, kick the bucket? You know... It's, uh, it is a strange one. I mean, I often thought of going around the world again in the opposite direction. Right. Because it's always different when you go back <laughs> in it. I mean, that's what people get there. People say, why did you go to Timbuktu? And it's the old adage, you know, because it was there or just to see how far it was. Um, right, well, just before we finish, I've got to tell you the Timbuktu story, right? So I'm in uh, Mauritania, the People's Islamic Republic of Mauritania, following the Dakar in a four-wheel drive yep. and we are in we're near a place called Leoun yes, in, Maurit in, yeah, in Mauritania yep. and we've passed an old R80GS a oh, red right. one with yeah. the British plate on it earlier in the day and I thought I wonder, as we passed him I thought I wonder we'll see that guy later to the, this later today and we did he rolled into the camp that we were in about an hour after we arrived and he got his bivy out and he got his mess tins out and he started to make his uh, make his camp. And I thought, I won't bother him while he's... I'll wait till he's sorted out. Yeah. And I went over and I found out it was a guy called Eddie. He was from North London. And his story was that he'd had a light engineering business in North London, employed about 15 people, and um, was at a point in his life where 
he had a lot of stress with his business, with his family. His children were of an age where they were getting married, having grandchildren. His mother was yeah. still alive, but she was very... He had a lot of stress in his life. Yeah, yeah. He said, I used to lie awake at night thinking, how can I hold this all together? He said, then one morning I thought, do you know what I'm going to do? I'm just going to go. Mm. just going to get a motorbike and I'm going to go. He sold his business. He divvied up the money to his kids and his significant others. Said goodbye to his dear old mum. And he set off on this BMW R80 GS to go to Timbuktu. Do you know why? He told me. He said, when he was a younger man in his teens, if he was going out of the house and he was all sort of spiffed up in his Sunday best, yeah. his mother would say to him, where the heck do you think you're off to? Timbuk bloody too. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> right? And he said, no, be- right. because of that... Yeah. He was going to Timbuktu in Mali. Everybody of our age will remember that Timbuktu. It was just, it was just a, a magical, mystical place. No one even knew it existed. It seemed, as you say, Dave, a place that may or may not have existed. Yeah. And of course, it is literally in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, it's, yeah. it's about as far from North London or the outskirts of Manchester as us two, you know, have yeah. lived in, as you could imagine to be. And that, in a way, is. The magic of motorcycles, yeah. isn't it? Because you can get on a motorbike at your house uh, or my house, and then a couple of months later, you can be in Timbuktu or Alaska yeah. or Tierra del Fuego or the Northern Territories of Australia. And there's something, like you said as well, different about being on a motorbike yeah. to being in a car. And when people ask me about it, I always liken it to horses and carriages. If you're in a carriage... There's a barrier between you and everybody else. Yeah. If you're on a horse, that barrier is taken away. Yeah. You're in a car, there are barriers between you and everyone else. Yeah. If you're on a motorcycle, you're like a, a horseman. You are, there's no barrier. And you interact differently with people. Right. Do you not think? Yeah. Yes, That's been exactly, my. Exactly, is it? Yeah, you get all the smells, the, 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 the wind. Well, people treat you differently. When you arrive somewhere, they treat you like an adventurer, they, they do. treat you like. You know, you arrive in the middle of nowhere on a motorbike. And even today, I, I went out to see somebody a couple of weeks ago on the coldest day of the year so far, and it was about a 70-mile trip. I got there. When I rolled up on a motorbike, he was absolutely gobsmacked. <laughs> he was like, what the hell? Yeah. <laughs> and like you said, he said, but you've got cars. And I went, yeah, but I just fancy yeah. coming on the bike. Yeah. And he went, it's minus three. And yeah. I went, yeah, but I've got all the gear on and all that sort it's of an stuff. Event. And it, yeah, it was an event. That's it from another edition of Steve's Speed Shop. Don't forget to join me next week. And don't forget to tell your friends all about Speed Shop and where they can listen to it.